The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Tonight is uh, September 30th, 2006, and our speaker is Viakarin, otherwise known as Judith Regeer, and she'll be speaking about the mysterious pivot point using our aversion to enter non-duality. I'm Wendy Morris, and I'm one of the program leaders here at Common Ground. Um, I have the great joy of introducing Judith. And Judith has been a dear friend and Dharma sister for many, many years. I think the first time I saw Judith uh, was in an earlier incarnation as a dancer choreographer, and she was performing a piece with, this is how long ago it was, she was wearing a Walkman at the time, she was dancing, and I didn't know what it was. I'd never seen one before. <laughs> um, and what I remember from that first meeting with Judith, seeing her dance, was being awed by the fearless courage of her honesty. And that very first um, taste of who she is has continued through the many years that uh, the joy of witnessing her, her transparency and her honesty in many manifestations. And my sense of it is that that her fearless honesty comes out of a deep commitment to her own freedom, which is not separate from our freedom. It's my experience of Judith's perception of it. She's a senior Zen practitioner and a Zen priest. She studied with Katagiri Roshi for about 17 years while she was dancing, had her dance career in New York and Chicago. She would come to Minnesota and sit, sit with Katagiri. And then in 1986, uh, she moved here from Chicago to study with Katagiri. And I think that's just one of those many moments when I've sort of seen Judith's commitment to her practice manifest. That is just the compass for her life. Judith is very deeply respected in many, many Buddhist communities. Um, I remember the first time I was looking at a book, and it must have been one of the first books about American women in Buddhism. And I remember sort of flipping through it, and there's a poem that Judith wrote. So she's had a, a very <coughs> subtle and profound influence on the Buddhist community here in the Twin Cities and also with ripples beyond, you know, through in a, a, a sort of quiet, sometimes not quiet, sometimes quiet sort of um, uh, manner. Um, she's uh, was one of the co-founders of Clouds and Water Zen Center, um, the Stone Women Dancing, which is a consortium of women uh, who are committed to feminine spiritual leadership. She and I, for the past two or three years, have been serving on the steering committee for the Dharma Diversity Project, which is an initiative to increase access to the resources of Buddhist contemplative pra practice for people of color. And we just helped uh, organize the first meditation retreat in the upper Midwest for people of color. And what and my sense is that each time Judith is, is in the room, the room deepens. It's like an anchor. Isn't she sweet? <laughs> so I could go on and on and on, but I'd rather, um, I'd rather give the time to you, my dear, and also to, um, to us, that after Judith speaks, there will be a reception. So please feel free to, um, to drink in this kind of nourishment, and then we'll have a chance to ask, ask some questions or some comments, and then 
have some refreshments and some social time together. So with that, I want to deeply welcome you to my community. Thank you. Thank you. She didn't say, she told me all these embarrassing personal things that she was going to tell you. I forgot. <laughs> uh, so it's nice to have a good friend introduce you. Um, good evening. I decided to uh, talk about a practice of mine that's very important to me and very deep to me. And it's hard to talk about because it's such a difficult practice and people generally don't want to hear about it. <laughs> so that being said, I'm going to tell you uh, about an adventure I'm having with a certain practice. And I, I've talked quite a bit about this in different ways over the past years. Uh, but today I, I thought maybe I would tell you how I got into doing a very difficult practice. And then I'm going to try and share with you what the practice is and then um, I feel like by sharing this practice, I'm going to spoil your practice for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean by that? You hear something that uh, makes it harder to go on with your habituated patterns of what makes you feel comfortable. So uh, the practice I'm going to talk about tonight does not make you feel comfortable. Um, so that being said, I'd like to also do, uh, are, are caveats what you put before a talk? Yes, so I have a few caveats. Um, in my spiritual life, I spent a long time and there's many people, old friends of mine, that can testify that this is true. I spent a long, long time healing myself uh, and doing a lot of psychological and emotional work to heal the woundedness of my past and my issues. And I used spirituality was one of my tools very much an important tool for me to recover my wholeness as a human being. Um, and there are many, many practices, and there's often times when I talk about those types of practices that are healing and can help you come to a sense of wholeness. But tonight I'm not going to talk about those. Okay. And I wanted to say that, that caveat, because what I'm going to talk about tonight is different than those kind of practices, but does not put them down or belittle them at all. Uh, does, is, is that an understanding that we have? So uh, in some senses, I think psychologically, you might say what I'm going to talk about tonight is transpersonal spirituality or a spirituality that um, is um, not based on making yourself feel whole, but actually it's the reverse. It's dismantling the idea that there is a self here. So do you get that that's slightly different? And some of you might be in a phase of your spiritual life uh, where the more healing, more psychological practices are what you should be doing. And if you're in that stage of your spiritual life, you can just listen to this as a preview of what might be coming. And many of you will be able to hear what I'm going to say um, and you start using it right away. And I say that because um, I call this lecture Buddhism Extreme. Do you know like extreme sports where they do these wild things? 
um, this part of my Buddhist life has been doing things that I would normally call quite wild. And I do them with the intention of dismantling my sense of the solid self or my sense of my ego or intellect making rational decisions all the time about what's best for me. Um, I started this shift in my practice uh, quite a while ago when I think about when I started to do Tonglen practice. How many of you know what Tonglen practice is? Okay, so there's some people who don't. Um, and I was trying to think how long ago did I start working with Tonglen, but I think it was before my children were born, so it's more than 15 years ago. Uh, Tonglen is a Tibetan practice where on your inhale, it's a breath practice, so it's kind of easy to do, but it's not actually very easy to do. On the inhale, you breathe in the poisons of the world, greed, anger, and ignorance, or the suffering or the pain of the world. You allow it to come into you. And then on your exhale, you breathe out uh, freedom or liberation or spaciousness or love or the qualities that you think of in relationship to the truth about our life. So um, I think when I first started doing Tonglen, that was the original shock to my ego. Because what we do when we're based living our life based on an ego is, is the reverse which is we protect ourselves against the poisons or the suffering, and we keep the good stuff for ourselves. We don't give the good stuff out. So Tonglen began my journey of doing a practice that is completely the opposite of what I normally was doing, which was defending myself against suffering and the poisons and holding on to the good stuff for me and my enlightenment. It also began a, a shifting in my practice where I think prior to that, I was very concerned about having an experience in zazen, an experience in meditation that was so wondrous that it would totally change who I am. I wanted an enlightenment experience in sitting practice, formal sitting practice, and I was quite involved in trying to get that. And as I've matured, that has become less important to me, but what's become more important to me is that I'm not holding on to a solidified self that I'm not holding on to this idea that Judith Regeer is here and she has certain needs and if you don't meet those needs then I'm mad at you. Uh, you know what I mean? That kind of living my life um, always from a point of view of what my needs are, what my likes and dislikes are. And Tonglen completely goofed that up. Do you see how it would do that? Because I was reversing what normally one would do, which is protect from the bad stuff and keep a hold of the good stuff. And it switched it around. And Tonglen, the practice of Tonglen is actually pointedly trying to do that, to make you see that you don't have to negotiate the world like that, where you keep all the good stuff or your healing is the most important thing. And, um, and Tonglen also taught me to be more generous, like give it out on the exhale, really give it out. So that began a the other thing I would like to say is that my spiritual life up until that point, I would have to say was quite selfish. 
um, I was still very self-concerned about my own problems, my own psychological problems, my own woundedness from the past. Um, and I was very wanting to have a transcendent experience, which is also quite self-centered, don't you think? You know, um, and, you know, I was doing all the right things, but there was something off about the core. You know, now I'm doing hindsight, and I'm, I still love myself back then, trying my best <coughs> to be a good Buddhist. But I'm trying to explain to you how I got to this new place I'm in, um, which I'm, I'm excited about. So Tonglen was the beginning of that practice, and I did a lot of things around Tonglen that I would never do. It's counterintuitive, someone told me, because our intuition is based largely on what's good for me and what's you know, a very much I and thou uh, setup. So your intuition is kind of more from, I mean, I think there's an intuition that's transpersonal, and if you tap into that, you can trust that. But this type of intuition was more still based around what do I need to enjoy my life, or may I even say to look good, in terms of being a Zen priest, am I doing it right? That kind of thinking. I don't know which stories to tell. One thing I'm learning is um, Tonglen moved me into the direction of, oh, spiritual life isn't about being comfortable. I thought that's where I was headed, right? I'm going to transcend my suffering and live a enlightened life where things are calm, peaceful, open, spacious, illuminated, and I will be slightly above the traumatic suffering of the rest of the world. Well, Tonglen breaks that down, right? <laughs> because it says, you know, if there's a war going on, bring that energy in and then send the loving energy out. So I, really, that was such a reversal, psychological reversal of what I had been calling spirituality up until that point. Um, and the idea that my spiritual life is not about being personally comfortable was also very new to me uh, when this switch started to take place. And it's been now, you know, it's been at least 15 years that I've been switching my orientation uh, of my practice. Tonglen moved me into, I guess I'm going to, uh, I did do a lot of things going towards, I really wanted to be not self-centered anymore. And uh, one of the things I did was I went to Auschwitz with Bernie Glassman. And that trip, I had been doing Tonglen for myself for several years. And I still felt it was all about myself. You know, like my suffering or my girlfriend's suffering. I couldn't get large. I wanted to get larger than how I usually am. And I was attracted to going on this. I have a Jewish background. Uh, I've been very interested in Bernie Glassman. So I went on this trip. And the idea of bearing witness to suffering also started to penetrate me that um, the idea again was that that spirituality is not about comfort it's about more and more and more and more and more growing and growing and growing and growing and growing 
so that you can bear witness to the actuality of human life. Not cut off, nothing cut off, everything allowed. And in order to have everything allowed, uh, this is a sentence I say a lot, I think I got it from Pema Chodron, you have to increase your capacity to be with negative emotions or experiences, what I called in the title our aversion. Constantly being able to hold energy that's uncomfortable more and more and more. And what that means in terms of the bodhisattva path is the more you're able to hold uncomfortable feelings, the more you're able to do service in harder and harder situations. Like I have a dream that I might be able to go to a war-torn place and help, but I know that I couldn't do that unless I could bear witness or hold the uncomfortableness of actually seeing what a war-torn country is like. You know, I can say I want to go there sitting in Minnesota, never having experienced a war, but to really go to Darfur in order for me to help, I would really have to be able to be with that type of energy in myself and with other people. And that type of patience and generosity and largeness, then maybe I could actually be present and help. So for a number of years, I've been trying to become more comfortable with being uncomfortable as my Zen practice which is kind of funny because I came to Zen, it was not about being uncomfortable. You know, I wanted not to be uncomfortable. I wanted freedom from suffering. And also, if any of you know Zen practice, they make you sit for so long. It's never comfortable, you know, and especially if you're sitting a 15-hour day. It's, and you can't move. It's, it's very not individual in a certain way if you're in a very strict container like Zen. So it's often uncomfortable. Uh, so just being able to be with that, learning, and that's a big learning. What does your mind have to do? What does your heart have to do? How do you just be with your feelings? without changing them, fixing them, or anything. Uh, part of uh, psychological healing is that you do often try to fix it. But I'm talking about not trying to fix it, just trying to be with life the way it actually is. So then my next adventure after doing Tonglen for quite a while was meeting up with Machik Labdroma, Machik Labdran. And I'm gonna, now I, I think you're prepared for Buddhist, Buddhism Extreme. I'll put up my sign. So Machik Labdroma, there's a lot of different ways of saying her name, and there's different ways of spelling her name. Um, and I got to her through various people. Sultra Malioni wrote about her in her book, uh, Women of Wisdom. She's one of the stories in there. And I also got to her through Pema Chodron, who has done lectures on Machik Labdroma. She is a uh, 11th to 12th century Tibetan. She was one of the first women teachers in the Tibetan lineage, and she's uh, very powerful uh, for that. For that, and she was one of the people who really worked with Tonglen, and she also introduced what they called should practice in the Tibetan lineage, which maybe I'll share with you. We'll see if if we go that far. What was the practice that she actually did? But um, so, how long ago? I think this was after I left Cloud. So 
Within the last five years, I've been working on uh, my, uh, my chief's teacher was, uh, I don't know how, to, how you say it, actually, uh, is Padam Pasange. He was a male teacher, and these were his instructions to her uh, when she was um, cultivating herself. And um, so I'm going to read these instructions now. Uh, and again, in a way, this is like the hardest instruction. And why I said um, that I'm going to wreck your practice, I said that kind of facetiously, but I feel like these instructions have kind of wrecked my practice. And I end up in the weirdest situations because I'm following these instructions. Like, even that I might go back to clouds and water is probably because I've been practicing these instructions and they just, they beam you in to your karmic entanglements. Beam me in, Scotty. And that's another thing I'll just say about karmic entanglements. In the beginning of my Buddhist life, I just thought, oh, yay, you have one of these experiences, and then you don't have any karma anymore. Isn't that great? Let's go there. Follow that carrot. Boy, did I follow that carrot. You know that thing where you, they put it? Beam on. It's like from these old cartoons. Like, what are they? Uh, some cartoon, he had a beam thing and then a string and there was a carrot and he would just be running around. Well, in a lot of ways, I think my Buddhist life has been a lot like that. Running around after, after the carrot of enlightenment and the carrot of freedom and the carrot of transcendence. And oddly now, I feel that I'm getting this transcendence by doing this counterintuitive practice that beams me into untangling my karma. And it's not about comfort, and it's actually not about myself. Hallelujah. That's what I feel. You know, I've been in Buddhism now since I was like 20 years old. I'm 55. Hallelujah that I'm not interpreting spirituality as a aggrandizement of the self. This is very, very important. This is not what it is in any religion that you look at. It's about breaking down our ideas of self-centeredness. And in Buddhism particularly, breaking down our idea that there is a self there to uphold or defend or to collect objects to enhance that person. Really, it, for me now, it's about learning more and more how to let that patterning go and more and more to be of service to other people. And the more I can handle uncomfortable experiences, the more I can go into more and more heavy-duty situations and try and help. Do you get that chain of events right? Because if I, if I can't handle my uncomfortable feelings, I can't go help the homeless. Even little things like going to Dorothy Day and serving food, which isn't that much interaction. But still, if you're not able to face the pain, you're not even able to go, right? So the first one is confess or reveal your hidden faults. The second one is to approach what you find repulsive. The third is help those you think you cannot help or help those you do not want to help. Four, anything you are attached to, give that. Or anything you are attached to, let that go. And five is go to the places that scare you. 
So some of you might recognize this one because it's the title of one of Pema Chodron's books. Uh, there's a very, if you're interested in these teachings, she has a, she did a retreat on these and they're in tape. You can go to PemaChodronTapes.org and get the tapes. And I've listened to the tapes uh, maybe three times now. I, my group that sits on Wednesday morning, we all listen to the tapes. And we all memorized. I had everybody memorize these instructions. And so now all those women are, are wrecked. <laughs> I, please take that as humor. <laughs> so this is what I call the mysterious pivot. It's completely counterintuitive in terms of holding myself as upholding a self. And I have found that this has matured me in the greatest sense of being an adult. Um, and perhaps you weren't as immature as I have been. I hope not. So maybe you all know this, what I'm teaching tonight. But it, I took, it took me a long time to get to understand uh, the idea of selfless service. So one thing that Pema Chodron has talked about that I've taken to heart is this idea that I used to think that my spiritual life was geared towards this great enlightenment moment where everything would fall away and my life would completely change on a dime in that moment. And to tell you the truth, I've had moments like that. Um, you know, you can uh, wear a belt and put notches in your belt about how many mystical experiences you've had when you sit a long time. Because you will have, if you sit a lot, you, everybody has... Um, uh, life-changing experiences. But, and, now what I think is important is another statement which Pema Chodron has graciously given to me is, if I could die, well, we're all going to die, right? So, when I die, if I could look back over my life and say, I actually have um, loosened my karmic knots, K-N-O-T, even a little bit, this was a good life. So now when I look at my life, I notice where my K-N-O-T's are. And I say, oh, that's where I have to go, to my KNOTs. And I have to do a lot of this stuff here in order to see if I can loosen up my karmic knots with people, with institutions, with situations, with my family of origin. There are many, many, all the problems in your life are there for you to loosen them up by seeing them from a different set of eyes. Not seeing your life as a fixed storyline, but seeing your life as everything is a doorway to practice in the present moment. Everything is a way of loosening my sense of self and my own desires. And being able, I feel lately, having started to really practice this for the last five years, I feel like my ears have opened. Like I can hear, I can listen to what's actually going on. And it's not like just spinning around me. 
even the trouble spots in my life, I can go there more aware or more open and hear what are people saying? What actually needs to happen in this situation to, as Pema Chodron says, just loosen it up even a little bit? And usually those places are places that I'm afraid to go to, places that I find repulsive. Usually there's some hidden faults of mine in there. So I feel like my whole orientation in my practice has really changed by, now I am not able to do all of these. I'm not able to do them perfectly, that's for sure. There's still many, many, many places where I won't give that, you know. Um, but the sentences are in the back of my mind. So when I'm really afraid of something, I'll say, oh, darn it, I have to go there. I have to explore that place. And how um, I studied uh, with uh, Okamura Sensei a couple of weeks ago uh, the Dogen fascicle of Buddha nature. What is Buddha nature? It's a wonderful retreat. And one of the sentences that I've been contemplating since that retreat are is um, the root is already severed. The root is already severed. Now I'm saying that in relationship to saying the storyline of our life is not solid, or even our self isn't solid. When I go to these karmic situations, I think that they're a solid, fixed situation that I have to maneuver somehow, or fix, or do something to. But uh, Pema Chodron always talks about groundlessness. So that was a switch, too, because for my whole spiritual life, I was trying to be more grounded. And then all of a sudden, my spiritual teacher said, no, 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 no. You're supposed to be less grounded. You're supposed to be free. And my interpretation of that now is that when I get invested in the storyline, I think they're really roots, really permanence, or really fixed. You know, like a root makes you fixed. But now when I say there's no root because everything is changing and moving, you can't grab onto it and say, this thing has a root. This thing has a root. Because it's going like this. So now when I get really hooked, I say to myself, there's no root. It's just causes and conditions. And they're movable. And they're, not only are they movable, they're actually moving. I don't have to do anything. They're not fixed. There's no root. That's a big difference for me in how I'm facing my karmic knots and facing phenomena. There's no root. Even if you think there's a root, there's no root. Now that lightens me up a lot, and it gives me more courage to go towards it because I don't even know what it is. It is moving. And I think also this change I'm having is my spiritual life used to have a center. I could say the center was me, or I could say the center was my line of chakras, if you want to get a little more mystical. But now I don't say there is no center. Because, so that's different, too. We've, the whole thing has been, you got to get more centered, right? Since 1964, we've been saying, you know, when that pottery book 
came out about being centered. Some of you who are older know all the same books. We have all the same books in our head. It's not even about being centered because we're interdependent. We're interbeing. So it's not even about that. So actually, that lightens me up. Oh, there's nothing to do but be the experience and not be afraid. And trust. Yay! That great word. Trust that interdependent will work in your favor. It works in everybody's favor. Cause and effect. If you did something wrong, you'll find out about it. If you did something good, it'll be good. But you don't have to worry about it. But you do have to face the truth of what's going on. You have to face your life. So these instructions have gotten me in a lot of different places. A very, very different way of um, focusing my life. And I'm very happy I'm, I'm working with this even though I find myself in, in uncomfortable situations all the time now because I'm going towards that which I'm afraid of. And that's very wonderful because you realize your fear has no root either, right? It comes and goes and moves and it, it's not a fixed thing. So I'm going to end with telling you about where Machik Latran went after she got these instructions. Now, this is a Tibetan teaching. I'm just doing an introduction. I don't even, you know, please don't try this at home. <laughs> I did, though. <laughs> I did go uh, to Siltramalioni and I learned should practice. Uh, so, but I would suggest if you're interested, please find a teacher who teaches it and do it with the teacher. And, uh, and not me. <laughs> because I just learned it myself, so I'm not a qualified should teacher. But I do do it and it's quite interesting. So what should practice is, I'm just going to do very, very brief you know, the Tibetans do all these visualizations. So I'm just going to give you the briefest suggestion of what, should, what she developed from getting these instructions. You go to a place that scares you, usually like a cemetery where all the demons and spirits hang out, or like a dark forest. That's another good one. That I actually do because I live in the country now and I often sit in the dark. Um, but you go to a place that has lots of boogie-woogie men. And you have a drum and a bell. So you make a lot of noise to attract all the demons. Okay, so you're attracting. You're inviting the demons in. Then you do this visualization where you become machik so that you don't have to be afraid. You become the enlightened being. You cut up your body with a, you know, one of those Tibetan knives. You put it in a big cauldron. You brew the cauldron into spiritual nectar. You brew your own body into the nectar and you offer the nectar to all the demons. And actually, you offer it to all beings, but you start with the demons. It's a whole ritual of red demons and black demons and white demons and this time. Then all the beautiful beings, anyone who might want to stop by. <laughs> you know, in your conscious.
consciousness when you do it like, oh, your mom comes and the person you hate at work comes. And they drink the nectar of your own body until, you're, until they're completely satisfied and completely satiated with God's nectar or with this beautiful spiritual nectar. And, um, and then, you know, there's ways of closing down. There's ways of opening up the meditation, and there's ways of closing down the meditation. And the idea to me that you would invite your demons to come and that you would feed them the nectar from your own being has really helped me not to be so afraid and not to make my demons have a root, to understand that my demon's root is already severed. That making of the demon was something I fabricated in consciousness. But actually, Buddha nature is no conscious, no fabrication. It's just what is actually happening in this moment. That's it. No demons. You know, even when there's a demon, you can handle this moment. This moment is just, what are you sensing? What are you feeling? What are you smelling? What are you seeing? What are you not seeing? What are you not smelling? Do you get it? Just, and this, to me, is enlightenment. If I can understand that it's only this moment and that all my fabrications have no root, then you can be a Zen practice. It took me a long time to get back to Zen practice. I had to do this whole Tibetan thing. Zen practice says then you can be intimate with the moment. There's no fabrications, no conceptualizations around it, no fears, no, no nothing. Just what is happening right now. And it doesn't have, it's not self-centralized. And for me to say that is a miracle, that's what I think. I came from an extremely narcissistic family, and I've lived most of my life with a lot of narcissism. And I, I feel like I'm finally starting to act like an adult. And the way I got there, oddly enough, was through these counterintuitive instructions. And they're not very much like, come to spirituality and you'll be peaceful and no more stress. And it's not like that. In this stage of transpersonal Buddhism, I love all aspects of Buddhism. I think they're all worthy to pursue. I'll just say that again. Uh, and at some point, you get to the place where you really want to enter into non-duality, or what does it actually mean that there is no self? And as they say in Christianity, God moves in mysterious ways. So a lot of the time, I'm doing these things. I have no idea why I'm doing them. But I'm following the instructions. And then something kind of miraculous happens, where I shed an old energy habit. And then my energy feels freer and more available to be right here, whatever I'm doing. And I do a lot of varied things. I'm a mom. I teach Buddhism. I try and rest. There's many, many phenomena that pass, pass you by. But if you don't give them a root, you can be really free. Uh, Dogen called it uh, flowers in the sky. You know, usually you think of a flower. You plant it in the ground, and then it shoots up and flowers. And every moment in Buddhism, every moment is a flower, whether it's a flower you like or a flower you don't like. And Dogen said, actually, there's no root. They flower drifting in emptiness. 
just in the sky they flower. And then they die. You know, it's just constantly moving. So thank you for listening. I think we still have time for some questions or comments. I don't, not necessarily questions. Um, I, I've been lecturing quite a bit on um, the brokenness, spirituality of imperfection. Um, and what I've learned from Pema children is that brokenness makes you vulnerable. And that raw, naked feeling makes you in touch with uh, unbounded openness. If you're defended, you can't be in touch with Buddha nature. I mean, it's still in you, of course, and flowing. But there's a type of raw vulnerability that one needs to actually experiencing the fragility that, of life. Now, you know, with these, if you were teaching a class, then you'd go into each one and talk about each one. So. Oh, just a comment. Someone else, comment. One of my, I asked one of my teachers, um, how do I know that I, I really am on, on the spiritual path? thinking and he told me several things but one of the things he said was you're frightened if there's no fear then you went off huh. um, and I never forget that so I, I check from time to time am I, am I going to the places that frighten me so um, I felt very inspired by your talk thank you thank you did you all hear that? Mm -hmm. That if she isn't slightly frightened, she's not on the edge of her practice. I'm quite frightened, actually. Tomorrow they're uh, voting at Clouds and Water Zen Center if I'm the lead teacher or not. So talk about being on the edge of what I'm capable of. Would you like to, could you talk just a little bit about self now? You you talked, you know, about non-dualism mm -hmm. and no self. And what about Judith and self? Is that still there all the time or it comes and goes? Well, you know what I'm thinking about self I got from Shantideva. Yeah. This is the greatest quote. I wish I had the exact quote, but I'll do my best to remember it. You are a bundle of skandhas, right? For those of you, you know, we're just energy coming together. And that energy has these sense objects. Now, did I write down that thing about senses? I don't think so. So you have all your senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, uh, body, mind, consciousness. You know, you have your senses. But Shanti Deva says, 
you don't own your senses. Other people own your senses. So that's what I think about self. That I do have all those faculties. I'm sitting up here and you're sitting there. Uh, I still hear, I still think, I still have emotions, I still have consciousness, but I don't own them. And if I can think that all of you own my skandhas and my sense perceptions, I feel like I am in the right place. And then I can sit up here and tell you my experience. Or, or not sit up here. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And I think of my storyline karmic life as the doorways for practice. And it's been a long time coming. Like I go back, I, I'm, I'm establishing relationships with my brothers even though it's quite uncomfortable. But I'm listening to Pema's voice that says, if you can die and your relationship with your brothers is a little bit more easy, you've done something. You don't have to do it in the next life. Or my relationship with clouds. If I can die and I've done a little bit something to help loosen that up, I have really practiced well. Do you get what I'm saying? And it's no big fish in the sky. It's what am I doing with my, my one precious wild life, as um, Mary Oliver says. I don't quite understand. So could you explain to me what you mean that others own your, your emotions? I don't quite get that. Well, I didn't say emotions. Because emotions are a uh, emotions are a complex what will I call them fleeting phenomena that come about through my senses and my consciousness. But what I'm saying is because of interdependent co-arising. Because we in this room are co-creating the moment. I'm not creating this moment even though I'm the speaker. This is co-created. Therefore, my mouth is your consciousness. Does that kind of explain it? It doesn't obliterate the fact that I'm Judith Regeer, that I studied Buddhism for 30 years, that I had a terrible childhood, all the things that make me up. It doesn't obliterate that at all. But it's, it's um, flowing rather than fixed, or combusting rather than static. And this is good news, because that means we can change. Nothing is static in your life. So yay, we can change if we don't have this stuck consciousness. If you have a stuck consciousness, then you just recreate it over and over and over. Have you noticed that? <laughs> you get divorced, and funny, the second husband is just like the first husband. <laughs> Unless you've done something in between, right? Yes. I don't know whether I can explain why, whether I can put all this into words because it's very confusing. You know, I confess my <laughs> hidden thoughts. I mean, I've gone through a long, in fact, my whole life almost, in that phase where you're trying to raise your self-esteem, you know, and this is. Counter to this seems like the opposite, is it? Well, when you say the opposite, when you say the op, whenever you bring up the dual duality, whenever you say the opposite, that means your consciousness will be at war. One side and the other side will fighting each other. 
So I don't say it's the opposite. But as I said, I think I preface this quite a bit. This is a type of spiritual practice that is advanced, I think, and um, is not about necessarily about psychological healing. However, I did years, years and years, 20 years of psychological healing and Buddhist psychology. And then I got to a place where I was able to incorporate this into a healthy sense of who I am. Now, the negative is if you take this and you beat up on yourself, right? Then that's negative, what I call negative narcissism. You're still as self-centered as ever, but now it's all bad, <laughs> right? So again, as I said, if this doesn't resonate, it's not the right timing for you, and please continue with the practice that suits. It, it's confusing because I've been with a teacher who always gets angry with me if I'm self-defeating, how many if I'm self-critical. He always makes her very angry, you know. And I would not, you know, because I would be more like this, you know. So it's, it's all very confusing, actually. Mm. Because in a way, I, I do need that, too. Well, it's like if your habituated pattern is what they, in pop psychology, call codependence, mm -hmm. then quite a few of these would not be good things to do. If that is what you're working on, then you don't help those you think you cannot help, right? <laughs> if that's your habituated pattern, then this teaching is inappropriate for you. Now, I took this teaching after 30 years of working on codependence. So I'm not, that's not, although it pops up, you know, but I can catch it now and I have the strength to do something differently. So after that, I can work on this. You, do you see what I'm saying? So. Again, I try to preface it with, it's a sophisticated, that's why it's good to work with a teacher. I'm glad you're working with a teacher. Your teacher knows you, and therefore the practice will be applicable to where you are. Yes? Well, I think it is a true relief as long as you're honestly and truthfully there. If you use anything to cover up uh, psychological disorders, then you won't get freedom, right? So you do, those are part of the karmic knots. If you have psychological issues, they are the places that you need to address. And I think about it as purification. I, I don't use that very often in the Zen world. But in a spiritual life, I think you have a long time where you are cleansing yourself of all the conditions that created you. And you do it through things like therapy and inventories and through meditation practice. I think it happens during meditation practice. Have you noticed things from your past will come up? and you digest them or burn them off as you're sitting. So then, after that process, however long it may take, then it's easier to come into a more transpersonal type of practice because that's not the centralizing focus. So again, I'd like to say I spent 30 years or 20 years before this working on integrating myself psychologically and healing and so that by the time I got here I was ready to look at it in a different from a different angle um, and there's development in spirituality and then also spirituality is right now right now right now 
And to have a real whole and integrated sense, I think you have to be able to have both of those in your hands. It's true, right? We have a self, like you were saying. I have a self. I have children. You know, I have problems with my kids. I have problems with people's health. All the, all the things that make up a life. But also, if you're in touch with the larger reality, you also have that. And you hold them both together. This is non-duality. If you don't take care of business in the samsaric world, it gooses you anyway, right? <laughs> it just doesn't go away. It just comes back. Wife after wife after wife. <laughs> or lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, if you want to say it more Buddhist. right? If I don't heal up my relationships with my brothers, then in the next life, the, there they'll be, trying to work it out. That's what they say, anyway. Well, it's been an hour and five minutes. Shall we celebrate and eat? Thank you. Thank you, Judith, for your willingness to um, share the story of wrecking your practice. <laughs> your willingness to come here and wreck our practice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.